Welcome to Growing Up Beverly Hills. I'm Stacy, And I'm David. And we went to Beverly Hills High School together in the 1980s. Each episode, we'll bring on a new guest to talk about their experiences growing up in Beverly Hills and their life and journey since. You may think it's all glitz and glamour in Beverly Hills, but many people have ups and downs. I think you'll find that the truth is stranger than the fiction. You're so right, David. That's all I wanted to hear. We talked with Craig X. Rubin. He's somebody we went to high school with in the 80s, and I've always stayed in touch with him, but I still learned so much I didn't know. He started smoking pot when he was 12 years old. Spoiler alert, he stole his first weed from Ringo Starr. And marijuana became a big part of his life. It led him on a journey with a lot of ups and downs. So interesting. Whenever Beverly Hills people come together and talk, you know we're going to drop some big names and places. We did with Craig, but we'll explain each obscure reference at the end of this episode in the BH Breakdown. Craig, welcome to Growing Up Beverly Hills. Let's do this. Okay, great. Well, I think one thing that we have all in common is that we are all Southsiders, and people out there might not know the concept of the Southside. What do you want to say about the Southside of Beverly Hills? And what do you consider the South Side, south of Santa Monica or south of Wilshire? At south of Santa Monica is really right. south of Santa Monica's South Side. Yeah, well, people don't realize how tough Beverly Hills actually was. You know, growing up on the South Side, I almost joined a gang. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you guys have heard of us, the lawyers. <laughs> I've heard of them, and we had to be really careful. The South Side gangs of Beverly Hills. It exactly. Was rough, rough growing up in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. They almost jumped me in, but I escaped. <laughs> so we were actually in the worst part of Beverly Hills that we could be from. Well, and here's the thing. it I really thought we were kind of poor at the time until I went to college. And then I realized, fuck, we were really rich. <laughs> like, even though it was on the <laughs> South Side. Like, we're still in Beverly Hills. It wasn't too shabby. No, it wasn't bad at all. But there was a huge wealth discrepancy. People lived in giant mansions, and we often lived in apartments. And I think that movie Slums of Beverly Hills kind of captured it really well. Right. But so many towns actually have a south side and a north side or below the tracks. And it's, it's crazy that Beverly Hills had that, too. Do you remember the trains that used to run through Beverly Hills? I do yeah. remember the trains. It ran down Santa Monica Boulevard, right where Jacopo's was. And uh, I totally remember waiting at that train before, like as a train rolled through Beverly Hills. I thought that was pretty funny. And then when I moved to Mexico, I moved to a very posh, nice neighborhood in the Yucatan, and it had a train in there. So it reminded you of home? A little bit. And it also had like this, uh, the city was called Merida, Yucatan, and it had this... uh, main boulevard called Montejo, Paseo Montejo, which is like Wilshire Boulevard. And they put up all the lights and the decorations for every holiday. And I lived two blocks from that street. So I used to walk it every evening. And it kind of did always remind me of home because it looked like Wilshire Boulevard. Very nice. My neighbor growing up was a guy named Jamie Bihar. And uh, I think at his duplex apartment is where I first met you. It is. I think we were talking about that yesterday, that we met at Jamie's house because we used to go there in the morning to smoke cannabis and after school and on the weekends. <laughs> and I, I, Jamie, it was. It, we were talking about how Jamie killed himself. He was like the first person I ever know to, knew to die. By suicide. As a young person, I think Dale then died after him and a, a couple other older kids from our school got in a car accident in Homeby Hills for a while. But it was it was the first Jamie and I really was friends with Jamie. He was such a nice kid. And it makes me think if there's anyone sad out there right now and feeling suicidal, that life can always change, you know, to, to you just never know. And you got to keep going because it sure would have been nice to still know Jamie today. He was such a cool guy. And I know he was going through tough times as a teenager. And we all do. There's so much of it is in your own head. That is true. And Jamie is a great loss. And we wish that he was here with us. And what you just said is you can change your life by every second. You just need to make a different choice and try to find the light within so much of the darkness, but you can definitely do it. Right. So I figure as long as we're talking to people, we should remind them of that positive positivity. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, because I've been through some dark periods myself, you know, um, I got in trouble for cannabis at one point. 
Tell us a little bit about that. As you guys know, I've been a cannabis activist type person forever. And I opened, they were just, we passed medical marijuana. I worked really hard to pass medical marijuana. We collected over 10,000 signatures at our hemp store in 96. And 10 years later, there were barely any medical marijuana clubs. So we had legal medical marijuana, but you could still be arrested for it. People were all the time. And then all it did was provide you a defense in court. It really wasn't legalization at all. But um, stores had opened up in Northern California. And in 93, when I first opened my hemp store, there was a gentleman named Dennis Perone, who's one of the fathers, the grandfathers, the founders of the marijuana movement in the United States, him and Jack Herrera and Tommy Chong, who are all friends of mine. And Tommy's the only one left alive. Jack and Dennis have passed away. But Dennis created medical marijuana. He was a really fascinating guy. And I've met so many interesting people in my life. I feel like some of my story is some of these cool people that I've really met, like John Trudell and Tommy Chong and, and these people I've gotten to know over the years. And Dennis Perone was one of those really lovely, lovely people. He was a tiny little guy, but he was one of the toughest people I ever met. He was a gay guy. He was a military police officer in Vietnam. He didn't even know he was gay until Vietnam. And he was back in San Francisco and he opened up all sorts of marijuana clubs, got in trouble. And he eventually realized during the AIDS epidemic that cannabis was medicine, that people who were using it recreationally were really using it medicinally. And so he fought for the right to have medical marijuana available. They passed the very first proposition in the city of San Francisco called Proposition P because Dennis had been raided and shot. Uh, for having two ounces of marijuana with his gay lover that they were using for medicine. And this guy was dying. And so we went to court and he won and he said, fuck you guys. I'm opening a club. I'm going to help everybody. And him and an old lady named Brownie Mary, who was just a sweet lady who made patients, who made brownies for the patients. Uh, and they had this marijuana club and Luca and I went up there. We saw it. We were like, oh, hell yeah. And so we started helping sick people. We were like, if we're going to get in trouble, you know, Jesus was healing the sick. We're going to help heal the sick. And so we started a, med a medical marijuana club in L.A. out of the back of our hemp store. And there was, you know, the first patient was uh, one night a father had come from Cedar sinai with his 14-year-old son who had been getting um, treatment for leukemia. And he had gotten sick and thrown up right in front of our store. The father was in tears. And uh, he shared with us that the doctor had told him to get marijuana for him. And he saw that huge hemp leaf in our building. And he just pulled over. And he's like, can you guys help me? And um, we felt really badly for the son who was dying. And, you know, so we got him medicine. And, you know, I, I don't remember the outcome, but I believe he was okay. A couple of friends of mine from UCLA had cancer and I helped them and, a lot of AIDS patients. So what Dennis did is he referred all the AIDS patients to me. I took care of a lot of them for quite a few years, but there was no club. I was doing it out of my house. And then a guy named Larry opened the Yellow House on La Brea. Um, a guy named Frank opened one on Hollywood Boulevard. So I kind of didn't want to break the law. Uh, I My great-grandfather was a rabbi, and I kind of always gone to Hebrew school and studied the scriptures and I really believe in God. So I wanted to be protected both federally and statewide. So we had the state law allowing medical marijuana and, and federally there had just been a, a Supreme Court case called UDV versus Gonzalez. Gonzalez was the AG under Bush. The government lost and the church won. They were allowed to import distribute and consume a scheduled one hallucinogen, which is the same schedule that marijuana was. So we felt that we had the right to do it federally. And so we opened our church, Temple 420, and a medical marijuana club. And they came and arrested me and the feds came and arrested me, but they charged me under the state law because under federal law, I would have a defense. But under state law, they claimed I had no religious defense, even though the police officers had medical notes. They seized my life savings and whatever. It was a horrible experience, but, you know, that's in the past. And you fought that case and the outcome was? I fought and lost. I got like 20 years. I got 
seven years in state prison and 13 years probation. I had never gotten in trouble for anything before. Mm -hmm. So I lost the case. And she said, well, there's good grounds for appeal. I may have misruled on a few things. So she says, I'm not going to send you to prison. So I had 13 years probation. It was pretty awful. I had to call in every morning and pee in a cup and get naked in front of this guy. Like It was just so degrading and humiliating and really brain damaged. I did have to go to jail for 10 days when they first arrested me in county jail. And that was horrific. I saw people being tortured in there and, and all sorts. Like I saw a handicapped guy chained to the floor for like 10 hours, just screaming. The I mean, this is now they've been busted for setting up fights in there and other things. But this was back in the day when I mean, it was straight. I mean, it was really horrific. I mean, I'm from Beverly Hills, so maybe it's more horrific for me than other people. I don't know. You were growing up Beverly Hills. <laughs> what a change from Spalding. Did you think marijuana is not a career during those that time on probation? No, I always knew it was a career. I knew, I mean, I wrote a book called 9021 Grow explaining how it, it could help the economy and create all these things. So... So I am I'm a believer in the economics of it always. I, I never doubted that. But when I was on probation, I actually became a fugitive. I left the country illegally because I realized how corrupt it was. And so I snuck into Mexico. And then when I tried to straighten out all my stuff, when it was getting close, what I realized was they had prosecuted me under my acting name, under Craig Rubin. And my legal name was Craig Roberts. I had never changed my name. So I was able to get all my IDs and I could pass back and forth across the border with oh no problem. God. That's great. I just stayed the hell out of trouble and never did anything wrong. Dave saw me down there one time. It was nice to see him. Friends would come and visit occasionally. And it was just, I lived in the Yucatan Peninsula. It's the most beautiful place in the world. The people are so nice. But you're not talking to us from Mexico, are you? I'm in West Virginia now because you guys voted for Prop 64 10 years to the day after I was arrested. November 8, 2006, I was arrested. You guys voted for Prop 64 November 8, 2016. That cleared my record. My great attorney, I mean, just dismissed everything like I had never even been arrested before. That's amazing. My great attorney, Eric Shevin, went to court for me, did everything. And I just kept my mouth shut. I, I could barely fit in my suit. I had gained some weight down in Mexico and I only had one suit left. So I had to like button my pants with a safety pin. I buttoned my jacket so you couldn't see. <laughs> I had on my one last clean tie. And uh, the, the prosecutor was like, your honor, he's he hasn't been to a probation. He hasn't paid anything. He like wanted to throw me in jail so bad and charge me all this money. And the judge just went like, uh, yeah, this is the white privilege thing. He's like, hey, look, he's a white guy in a suit. He's never gotten in trouble once for eight years. My my attorney goes, uh, he thought he had summary probation. And I knew I had fucking formal probation. Like I was supposed to call in every day. I was like, I got so sick of these guys. They were really fucking with me. And I was just done with it. I was just done with America. I was kind of feeling like this whole new world order, central bank bullshit. I'm done. I'm leaving the country. But I still love my country. I love America. I just felt like I didn't have my freedom of religion. I didn't have any of my rights. And it was really depressing. It was like your girlfriend cheated on you. And it hurt like I love America. And she, I knew I could have freedom of religion. And they cheated on me. You know? <laughs> well, we're glad to have you back. America loves you. Well, and that's the theme of my new company, TysonFarm.com, is it's time to come home. All my, my workers, like Christina, my assistant, who you guys met a second ago, she's an American who's been living in Mexico. My workers are all Americans who've been living in Mexico for years and years. And now that Trump's bringing manufacturing back and the jobs back, we're like, it's time to come home. And so I'm bringing back all these Americans from around the world to come work for us. And uh, it's cool. Look at you saving the world one bud at a time. <laughs> exactly. One homie at a time. <laughs> Now, I guess before you were on probation, you were running for office. Well, before I was running for office, I was on weeds. <laughs> Tell us about weeds. The reason I got arrested was because I was on weeds, because I was a very outspoken activist. 
and I was making pretty good money and spending it like to travel around the country and speak out at different rallies to end prohibition and things like that. I was giving money to people who were activists. And then I was getting in movies and TV, like about 15 marijuana movies, Haunted House of Chronic, Totally Baked, Super High Me, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, How We'd Won the West, American Drug War, just a lot of those the union documentaries about marijuana and cannabis and the people fighting for it. And then I got to be an actor on the show Weeds, which was really fun. Another Beverly graduate. Yeah. Genji Cohan was the creator of that show. Um, and she comes from the Cohan clan, which are like their fathers won more Emmys in Hollywood than anyone in the history of the Emmys. Her brother created some really good shows too. And so they're yeah, a very talented family. So did that Beverly connection help you or was that all because everybody knew you so well as a marijuana advocate? No, it was definitely the Beverly connection. Uh, John O'Cohan is my son's godfather, Chris's godfather. Mm -hmm. So um, I gave him some copies of 9021 Grow and he gave them to his sister and some of the other producers on the show. And they brought me in to be a consultant and I had read Zig Ziglar's book, Ask for the Moon, You Just Might Get It. And I had written down in my goals that I wanted to be on TV one day. So when I was there with the producers, they were like, hey, would you be a consultant for the show? And I was like, yeah, can I be on the show? And they thought <laughs> I was a funny dude. And I figured the worst they could say is no. And they said yes. So it was. I thought I was going to have a bigger part, though, because they're like, oh, my God, you're so funny. Yeah, we're putting you on the show. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I went home and I told my parents, oh, my God, I'm going to be on this new show. It's called Weeds. It's going to be on Showtime. And then, like, they called me up, like, two weeks later. And they're like, yeah, we need you to come in audition. I was like, audition? They're like, yeah, the part's Craig X. You need to come in and audition. You're, you're not a member of SAG. It's a SAG production. I was like, oh. What happens if I don't get the job? You had to audition to play yourself. Sorry, mom. I can't even play myself. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> but you got it. You did it. And you got it. That's the great news. Yeah. I was up against two guys, Bill and Dave. They looked like me, walked like me, talked like me. It was like, felt like Slim Shady there for a second. <laughs> that must have been wild. Yeah. So, and then they go, Hey, what's your name? They go, I'm Bill. I'm Dave. Like, what's your name? I'm Craig X. Oh, man, you're really getting into the part. <laughs> yeah. So I got the part, obviously, and I would have been real difficult to explain to my parents, like, well, Dave was able to capture the essence of Craig X a little better than me. It was, I'm glad I got the job. And it was fun. I love being on Weeds. I still love, like, because my friend, my best friend, he's doing Mission Impossible right now with Tom Cruise in Rome. So wherever we go, he's like, hey, what's up, actor dude? And, you know, I'm a nobody. But whenever my show episode comes on and one of my friends sees it, they're like, dude, I saw you on Weeds, man. And so I was like, oh, thanks, bro. Cool. Glad you thought of me. <laughs> so I'm not like an actor, actor. So I appreciate, you know, when someone goes, bro, I saw you. <laughs> I think it's great. Do you ever get recognized on the street? Well, twice on the street in my whole life. From mm -hmm. One time from a girl named Allison who was real nice. And I thought, oh, I'm a celebrity now, kind of. But it was like no big deal. She was a real pothead. And then at the <laughs> trade shows, I get recognized by like 20 people maybe during the trade show because they're really into him. So it's the culture. That's great. How did your parents feel? They were happy that you were an actor. Were they happy that you've been in the marijuana business all these years? No. I mean, my parents were happy I was an actor at Beverly Hills High School in the plays and drama department. I mean, my dad didn't care one way or the other if I ever got in a show or did a movie or anything. My dad said to me, as far as I'm concerned, smoking marijuana is as bad as shooting heroin. Each hit of the marijuana cigarette is the same as sticking the needle in your arm. Okay, that was a direct quote from my dad in the 80s. That's intense. Yeah, I know. It was Well, he kicked me out of the house in high school for smoking pot. I literally got kicked oh out of the God. house for smoking weed. And now my kids, like, I, you know, I'm like, please smoke weed. I'm like, just get good grades, smoke weed, stay home, you know, don't drink. But I probably shouldn't say that on the radio. My kids are in Mexico and all adults now. So. They're all grown. All grown. I mean, that's how fascist our country is, that you're, like, worried about our own government stealing your children for smoking weed. But... 
that's yeah, that's what my dad's attitude was back then. And now he asked me for marijuana stock recommendations. And yeah. and my brother's a legal marijuana grower in Humble. He owns a big farm up there and has his license to grow. So it's a family affair at this point. Well, we were growing in Beverly Hills on the south side as kids. My dad thought we kept hitting baseballs up on the roof, and that's why we were cracking those terracotta tiles. But we actually had some plants up there that we were growing because we used to score after Jamie died, we started going down to Pico and Hoover on our moped and getting like an ounce of weed for 10 bucks from the Mexican kids. I had my own experience at Hoover and Pico. Yeah. And so we were trying to grow that stuff, but it was such shitty weed. And I didn't know a male or a female. It wasn't until I was in college that I accidentally grew some kind bud that I started to realize genetics and then really get into it. But I, we grew all through high school, just crap. <laughs> Total crap. Yeah. People smoke pot, but not a lot of people make it like a lifelong passion and pursuit. What do, what do you think happened to you that like? Well, what I wrote about in my book, 9021 Grow, is my dad and I were really close when I was little and I had long hair in the 70s. And my best friend at the time, Chris Graykel, did you guys ever know him? He went to Crossroads. No. No. All right. Well, his father is Ringo Starr's attorney. And he is his dad and my dad went to elementary school and Hamilton High School together. And Chris and I went to nursery school at Children's World with Tony Concert. Wait, I went to Children's World. I bet you, you went were to in Children's World together. I think we probably were in class together. So I might have known you before Beverly Hills. Yeah. So we went, I went to Children's World with Tony. You remember Tony there and Ruth, the. Yeah. I mean, I went to Children's World, too, and we're the exact same age, so we probably were there together. (laughs) That's that's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Chris and I went there, too, and I I used to always come. We lived in Northern California. We were visiting L.A., or I was visiting L.A., and I spent the night at Chris's house, and I had just turned 12. And my dad said, you know, because there was always lots of drugs at the music house, you know, and I got to meet all the a lot of rock stars there, the guys from The Doors, The Monkees, and just people you'd see on TV as a kid. So it was really cool being at their house. And then uh, they smoked a lot of weed, though. And so there's just a lot of weed now. So one time my parents picked me up, and they're like, uh, did you smoke any marijuana? Because I got in trouble for smoking cigarettes. Like, And I'd only tried like a couple times, like not really in hand. I was just trying to be cool at 12 years old because my mom yeah. smoked, and you know how it is. Yeah. So... Chris took some weed from Ringo one day and we smoked it when his parents were out. We didn't even inhale. Like we really didn't inhale because we didn't want that like crazy coughing thing. And like, cause my dad had made me try a cigarette when I was six and he was like, suck it in like a milkshake, like a vanilla <laughs> McDonald's milkshake. And I'm, and I like turn green puke in. I'm like, I'm never going to smoke those. I'm crying. And then when I'm 12, I'm like trying a couple of my parents bust me because I'm like smoking out with my brother and cousins and stuff. Like we'd stolen from my mom's purse. So then we go to the Great Kells. Chris takes a joint and the two of us kind of smoke it. And my dad's like, tell me the truth. You won't get in trouble. Just tell me the truth, you know? And I had that long feathered hair in the 70s. I'm like, cool, whatever. I'm like, yeah, we tried it, whatever. I didn't like it. He's like, oh, you tried it? And then he gave me a fucking crew cut, like in the 70s. <laughs> I had to wear my, oh my baseball God. hat for a year. And like, oh. it was horrible. And I, it was like, I kind of had this like uh, epiphany from God. Like he told me, oh, you're going to legalize marijuana somehow that you're going to be involved in this plan. It's not that bad. And that was like how I coped with like dealing with that traumatic experience of having my head shaved for my dad. Listen, I under, I can totally relate. I love how weed has kind of taken you from being when you were 12 till today. Right. Because I remember also getting high. I mean, I think I was smoking pot by 14 since I did a drug rehab by 18 and a half. But right. anyways... It also my same, I fell in love with it as well and felt that it can take you on a journey of greatness and growth and openness and love. And I think everything about weed and what you've done with your life through it always is awesome and incredible. I think it's amazing. And I have 4,000 pounds, literally 10 feet below where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> I'm coming over. I'm on my way to West Virginia. 
I only have two ounces in my fridge right now. <laughs> Mine's hemp. I think it's just such an incredible story of perseverance when you had so many obstacles to overcome and you stuck with it and you ha- you believed in it. Um, I really believe in God. And I kind of feel like God blessed me. And I just kept a real positive attitude um, that even when I was going through a hard time, that God was kind of putting me through that a challenge. I didn't give up. I mean, I was literally homeless for two years. I lived in hotels. Like I didn't have enough money to pay my first and last after they seized our life savings. We had to quick sell our house or short sell our house, had cars repossessed. I mean, it was really bad. And with a lot of kids living in a hotel was not an easy experience. I really believe in God. And it kind of that faith just got me, you know, other people have had harder times than me. I still have my family. I still have my health. I just kept working at it and working at it. And I started teaching the Chinese kids online and that provided me with some stability. And then I just reinvested my money and never gave up. I listened to people like Robert Kiyosaki. I try to always listen to entrepreneurs who are working for free, you know, and that's what I always say. You just keep working for free until you make it. And when you're working for free and only working for yourself, you kind of are forced to have a lot of faith and just keep going. I just got really lucky and I thank God. That's wonderful. All right, now, how did God and your journey come together? Because I understand you opened some temples and... All right, well, here's the funny thing. All right, well, I, I grew up like pretty Jewish, big Jewish family. All like all Jewish, of us. All the Jewish holidays, but I never really learned to pray until I went to the Indian reservation at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And I started sweating with the Indians and praying with the Indians. And I felt very connected to God through the sweat lodge and their kind of spirituality. And it was very tribal, almost like the Bible. And I used to, I still do read the Bible at night before I go to bed. Just for some people who may not know, there's a tribe that lives at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and you became very close with them. Yeah, my mom started taking me there when I was six years old. We spent two weeks every summer from 1972 to 1984. And that was the year my parents got divorced. And so then my my dad stopped financing that trip. I wanted to keep going back to this reservation. I always dreamed about this place. I only spent two weeks a year there every year and had these five beautiful waterfalls. But they were the most fun two weeks out of the whole year. So almost every night I would have a dream about the Grand Canyon. So when my parents split up and I didn't have the money, I was just a college kid with not a lot of funds. I volunteered to help them rebuild the trails. There was a flood. And I think I had read Trump's Art of the Deal. And it was always like, do the harder thing, do the thing, go that extra mile and and you'll you'll get that extra credit for it. So I went down to go help them with flood. And I worked my ass off for a week. It was kind of disrespected, but I felt good. I was giving back to a place I loved. And I got to stay there for a week for free. And I just worked my ass off. And the day I was leaving, uh, this one guy, he was 26 years old. He just turned 66 this week, Roland Manikaja. Uh, He's one of the tribal elders. He was like 26. He had just gotten out of jail. And he's like, hey, come here, kid. He's like, yeah, you want to smoke? I'm like, I'm all out. I smoked out with everybody. He's like, no, we're going to smoke you out. He's like, yeah, I just got out of jail. My grandfather was the chief. I'm going to be the chief one day. I heard you've been helping out here. You're a friend of the tribe. I'm going to smoke you out. You want to come to the sweat lodge? Hell yeah, I do. You know, it was like the first time someone was respectful to me and treated me nice. We smoked all the weed they had. We sat there for hours. They were working. They just quit work and we smoked and talked all day long. And then we went and did the sweat lodge. And then they gave me one of their horses and they're like, yeah, just leave it at the top of the canyon. We'll get it tomorrow. And so I sweat lodged and then I rode out on this white horse and my Serapi it was awesome. He's still one of my best friends. His picture's on my wall right here with him and his nine kids. That's awesome. One of my biggest regrets is not going down there with you. I had an opportunity. You invited me down. For some reason, I was caught up in whatever I was doing, and I I regret it to this day not going with you. Yes, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Everyone who I've ever brought down there says it's changed their life in some way because you're away from cell phones, and it's the most isolated village in the entire United States, the only place in America to still get their U.S. mail by horseback. And um, it's at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You have to hike or horseback the last eight miles. I was going like 10 times a year at one point. I've hiked up and down that canyon like two or three times in a day. Wow. 40, 50 mile hikes in a day. 
and built my own house down there. I have my own house wow. down there. And um, so I just became good friends with them over the years. I took care of their kids. I've given their kids careers and taught them how to blow glass. And I've gone to court with the families because the kids, there's no high school there. So they go to Sherman Indian School, a lot of them in Riverside. And so I'm the I'm on their emergency cards and I would go pick them up and bring them to my house for the weekends and stuff. So I became really close with the people of that tribe. What's the name of their tribe? The tribe is called the Havasupai, H-A-V-A-S-U-P-A-I. They're part of the Pai Mojave culture, the, the Paiutes that Utah is named after. There's the Wallapai, the Yavapai, the Coconinos. The Hopis call them the Anasazi because they built the cliff dwellings and they still have, they call them Bawilas. Ba is man, we is stone. So Bawila is like a man stone place. Yeah, so I learned some of their language and their songs and their sweat stuff. And they're called the Rastas of the Grand Canyon. They love Bob Marley. They love cannabis also. And for some reason, I just connected with these people in this place. It's been a real blessing in my life. That's great. And then bad stuff happened after. To me, but you know, that's, you. that's life. But I think my story was really well publicized. They kind of tried to make an example out of me in a bad way. And what happened was people felt sorry for me and felt like, well, why is this stuff illegal anyways? You know, and it kind of helped change people's minds. I mean, that's what I tell myself. And I kind of had this like, not upset with God, but I was like, dude, come on. All my friends are getting rich with this shit. I'm fucking teaching English to Chinese kids. For, you know, like I'm barely feeding myself here. And I kind of had this like, don't worry, you'll get yours. It's going to be okay. And I was like, thanks, dude. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. And the faith uh, survived yeah. and the faith kept you going. And probably that's what keeps you today. So exactly. that's great. That's wonderful. Speaking of, what are you doing today? I have this awesome new product. Can't wait to see. It's called a fat sack of incense. And all it is is marijuana. It's an ounce of weed that I sell wholesale for 10 bucks, retail for 20. I'm in the smokable marijuana business, smokable hemp business. So for hemp, in case the people out there don't know, it was legalized in 2018, President Trump signed the farm bill. And so any marijuana that has less than 0.03% THC Delta 9 is considered hemp, products and derivatives with hemp. We made this awesome bag called a fat sack of hemp. And all it is, is an ounce of weed, of hemp weed, that you can burn as incense like I did in my church. And so it's long, it's long sticks. It's like four long, seven ounce buds. It's really nice chronic weed, but it's hemp. It's low THC, but it's perfect for smudging and blessing someone. Or you can roll it up and use it as an incense in a cigarette. That's fat with a pH. Yeah, fat, fat with a pH. And you get it at Tyson, TysonFarm.com. Woohoo! Yeah. One thing that we like to ask everybody on our show is kind of how and when your family and why. Why did you guys first come to Beverly Hills? My dad grew up in Beverly Hills on the south side also, but he couldn't join a club. Like they had... And they, I guess they were like gang clubs, but they weren't really. They were a bunch of white guys, social clubs. So my dad wanted to be in a club with all the kids he went to junior high school with. So my dad went to Hamilton High School. And then my dad was a really successful businessman because of being Jewish. He was the only Jewish guy working for the city at the time of the 65 riots in the position. And most of the other people were afraid to go into the black neighborhoods, but they sent my dad in with millions of dollars of cash. And he helped write grants and create um, like organizations, community organizations, um, some of which are still around today for like equal opportunity and social justice and that kind of crap. And so they sent my dad in like a 24 year old guy with millions of dollars of cash into the into Watts and in these neighborhoods to help these guys start their businesses. Then he went to work for a company and because he knew how the grants worked, he was able to get a giant contract for his Pete Marwick Mitchell or Pete Marwick at the time, I don't know. And so he became one of their younger partners and then went to Corn Ferry and he was with Corn Ferry in San Francisco and then they moved to Century City. And my grandmother and my aunt, you guys know my cousin, Allison, how fun we went to high school with her. Yeah, we know Allison. Yeah, so they lived in Beverly Hills. So we looked at a couple of houses in Beverly Hills. Chris Ostro's mom was our real estate agent. She had gone to high school with my dad. 
Barbara. Exactly. Barbara Goldberg, <laughs> who became Barbara <laughs> Ostro. And she went to Beverly High also. So did my mom. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. Did your mom or parents go there? Well, my dad went to Hamilton as well, and my mom went to Fairfax. My mom went to Fairfax. Oh, yeah. So they probably know each other anyways. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty funny. So what age was that that you moved, your family moved back? How old were you? August 15, 1978, we moved into South Weatherly. We had looked at a house that was right, ne- right south of the Beverly Hills Hotel, and it was the same price as the one on South Weatherly. But the one up there, it was, it was a lot bigger, and it was in crappy condition. But I think both of them were like 210, and my dad didn't want to fix her upper. You started in seventh grade? Seventh grade. At what school? Horace Mann. Oh, you were at Horace Mann, because I moved also in seventh grade, and I went to BV. From where? Uh, just LA. I grew up near La Brea and Beverly before. By, the, by Park La Brea? Yeah, by Park La Brea. Okay. Yeah, over by Farmer's Market. Yeah, where we exactly before the right. before the Grove is the Grove. That's where I grew. We would hang. That was my stomping ground. I had my first birthday at the Beverly Center. My first, second, and third birthday. Maybe one was at, at Kitty Land. At, at at Ponyland. I used to go Ponyland, horseback Ponyland. riding. Yeah. yeah, Ponyland and Kitty Land are, yeah. are where, and then they tore it down for the Beverly Center. Yeah, and then I had my sixteenth birthday. I think in eighty four or maybe in eighty two. We graduated in 84 from high school. Yes, I was 18. You guys probably all both went to my Sweet 16. David, I'm sure you went to my Sweet 16, that big party I had at some nightclub or something. I don't know. I'm the only one who doesn't smoke pot, and I remember very little, much less than both of you guys. Craig's mind is blowing mine because his memory is quite intact. I'm very impressed, Craig. I know. And I remember one like horrible thing, one Halloween at your house. Oh, you remember that? I feel really tell, badly about tell, that. Tell, it's a good story. Tell it. It was me and Ellie Miller, but you guys blamed me and Johnny Silverman. It was Johnny Silverman, wasn't it? No, it, it wasn't. It was Ellie. It was me and Ellie the whole time. All right, tell, Ellie, tell the story. It's so good. Well, here's the thing. It was kind of stupid. We were, I don't remember. We were all like just dumb, hanging out at your house at Halloween. Oh, and then Richard. I got a story about Richard too. Oh, please. <laughs> that was my stepdad <laughs> with the big was. Or the other Richard. Or the other Richard. The other the, Richard. The small, oh, the, the, my, uh, <laughs> I think we have a lot of stories we can go offline. Yeah. Another, another topic, but we have a lot to reminisce about the stories at my house. But with our housekeeper, Richard, yes. who, was, who was the first drug dealer. Oh God, he he was a character, that's for sure. But I'm building my my wet sauna like your parents' wet sauna now because of that. I love it. I love it. I love it. So what happened was one Halloween, me and but Ellie worked with your dad, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so me and Ellie were there, and Ellie's like, "Oh, wouldn't that be funny?" And we gave some kids, like two kids, cigarettes and matches for Halloweens. It was just the stupidest fucking thing. It was very irresponsible. We were 14 years old, whatever. And me and Johnny Silverman left, but it was me and Ellie that did it. You guys just blamed Johnny and I, and we were like, okay, fine, no big deal. Well, my stepdad came home, blamed Johnny, and runs around telling every one of my friends that Johnny Silverman is now banned from my house and is not allowed in the house at all. I was too. You were banned too, right? You got banned too. <laughs> well, you can come over now. All right, thanks. <laughs> but the funny thing was, it was me and Ellie. It wasn't Johnny. Oh, poor Johnny. I know, but Ellie was like, I work with him. Just say it was me, you, and Johnny. We're like, all right, no problem. <laughs> we <were> like, <laughs> you guys spent less time there. It was easier to blame you guys. Exactly. No, David was here a lot. David was there a lot. I was there that night. Yeah, I remember. Oh, would you? Were you there when he was all upset? Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, David stayed for the aftermath. Oh, shit. I never got banned. Oh, thank God. And we didn't try to be that irresponsible. I mean, looking back, it was just stupid. No, we totally were being irresponsible, and we did mean it, and that's okay. <laughs> A lot of those stupid things that we did in high school are things that, like, I, it sticks with you, and you feel shame about them. I, I do feel very irresponsible about the act that evening. Now we're looking back on that. But I feel like I didn't think we did it in a way to be like malicious. It was like so funny. 
Like we didn't think it was like horrible. Like I didn't think some kid was actually going to go smoke a cigarette or something. And it was fucking hysterical when we did it. We all fucking laughed about it, you know, and whatever. We were the guys that left because we were still trick or treating. <laughs> you know. Uh, one thing that we didn't kind of cover that I wanted to ask you about is just kind of your Beverly Hills high school experience in general. Did you hear the deep breath? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a real education in life. I was not the best academician. <laughs> so I did pretty well in ninth grade. I did okay in 10th grade. Um, I had 185 absences my second semester, senior year, and ended up with two D minuses and two Fs. I graduated with one extra credit. Like, I think we needed 220 credits to graduate. I had 221. My teacher, my counselor, Mrs. Beryl Franklin, she was like, you skated by on the absolute minimum possible, whatever. So academically, I really did not take advantage of all that we had there. We had a lot of control over like our own classes and our own schedule. And that... I, I had nightmares about that, recurring nightmares after I graduated high school that I was missing a class to graduate. I totally had that nightmare. I told my dad said he had the same nightmare. I had that for years. And even with UCLA, when I finally got my degree from UCLA for years afterwards, I had the dream like I was missing one class or something. <laughs> and they found it out or something. I don't know why it was up to us. Like they put way too much pressure on a kid that age to like figure out how to graduate from that high school. Well, I thought, you know, it provided us with a lot of responsibility. I worked. I worked like 30 hours a week during my junior and senior years. So I was more focused on making money than I was really on anything academic. I used to pay the secretaries at the secretarial pool in um, Century City to edit my papers to make sure my grammar and spelling was all done because they didn't have spell it didn't have spell check back then, right? And so I, I wanted to get good grades. So I would just write the paper. It was horrible grammar, horrible spelling. I gave it to the secretaries. They'd clean that shit up for me. I'd turn it in. I did that through UCLA. It wasn't until I wrote my first book, 9021 Grow, that I realized what a shitty writer I was. And I had to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And now I'm actually a good writer because of the experience. Didn't you run track and you did some drama? In ninth and 10th grade, I was really into track and drama. But by 11th and 12th grade, I had a serious girlfriend, a sports car, and a need for a lot of money. So I yeah. was I was like an adult who just happened to still have to go to, to high school. Um, like I said, I barely graduated. I, I got in some trouble with the car and tickets in Beverly Hills. I looked like I was 13 years old driving a car. <laughs> Those guys used to give me a ticket like every few minutes. And um, the guy down in Santa Monica at the courthouse hated me. But for some reason, I would like always go to the, I'd plead not guilty. And I delivered pizzas for Brooklyn's Famous where all the Beverly Hills cops worked. And then Stan, the pizza guy would tell the cops not to show up. So he would say, just plead not guilty, go to court. The guy won't show up. And so they kept not showing up. So I would win the case, but the judge hated me because they kept giving me tickets. I kept showing up at his court. So it was, it was bad. And my dad was pissed because he was missing work. So Mike and my cousins taught me how to sign my own emergency card in ninth grade. So I had my dad sign one emergency card and then I signed my own, the one I turned in. So years later, when my cousin, Michelle, I went to go pick her up one day and I went into the attendance office and they were like, Craig. And I was like, you guys remember me? They go, remember <laughs> you. They go, we can never forget you. And they pulled out my file and they go, we take this thing out whenever we need to laugh. I go, are you kidding me? Because I had 185 excused absences. I never had one unexcused absence because I wrote a note for everything. The whole idea behind the signature card was if you wrote your own signature card for your parent, you could sign your own name as them every time and get an excused absence. I totally did that. Here's what I did. I went one step further. So I would, whenever I had a legitimate one from my dad, like a real orthodontist appointment or a real one, I would have my dad write one. And then I would rewrite it with my left hand, the worst I could possibly do it. So it would look like shit. And they would call my dad and they would be, I'm busy. My son would never do anything like that. Stop bothering me at work. Of course I wrote that <laughs> note. Click. <laughs> and the ladies would like, ah, eh, don't call him. His dad always sticks his side. Like, <laughs> so I, I kind of worked the system pretty badly. 
And I don't know if it was good for me. It was probably bad for me. Well, how did this ever lead, lead to an acceptance at uh, UCLA? I had to go to junior college. Okay. And I, I had to go to SMC for two years. And I really sucked when I first got there. Like, <laughs> I was bad. I had to, like, do some remedial shit. But I got straight A's at SMC. So uh, I got accepted to UCLA, automatic acceptance, if you had over a 3.3 or something. Because I was in a scholars program. So I worked my ass off at SMC. I went at night because I was working. I went right after high school. I went to work. I got my real estate license and started working. And I was just into making money and girls. That's how I got into UCLA. So Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. It was so good to see you and hear from you. Uh, it was almost like a confessional. <laughs> it's crazy. You can be friends with somebody all these years and then learn so much more by really sitting down and talking to them like this. <laughs> Well, I, I hope you guys are real successful with your new podcast and you get to get to some of the famous people from our classes, our school. You're one of them. You are, Craig. Look at your well-rounded life. We love it. Well-rounded for sure, but I, I'm definitely a minor famous person. I'm, I'm not like a Nick Cage or somebody. Guys, I love you. Beautiful to see you, Stacy. You look fantastic. God bless. And thank you thank for joining you. us on Growing Up Beverly Hills. There you go. Growing Up Beverly Hills. Bye, guys. Thanks, thanks, Craig. You're welcome. Uh, thank Bye. you. Well, now it's that time of the show for the Beverly Hills Breakdown. Are you ready, Stacy? I'm so ready. Beverly Hills Breakdown. Craig covered a lot, so we have a lot to go over in this episode. That's true. Uh, I think one of the first things he did was talk about Jacopo's and... Certainly nobody out there knows about Jacopo's unless you're from Beverly Hills. And that was our favorite pizza place in Beverly Hills. But David, I'm sure you have a little more to say about that. Well, it was the only pizza place. And it was actually the only place that ever delivered to my house as a child. So if we ever wanted to have food delivered to our house, it had to be Jacopo's. And I just remember walking there up um, into through Beverly Hills and picking up pizza. And all the kids would meet there like in 7th, 8th and through high school too. It was just a meeting spot. Yeah, it was a kind of a cute place and they had good pizza and you could sit at a counter and order a slice. A lot of people ended up becoming delivery guys for that pizza place. It was a happening spot in Beverly Hills. Then a lot of schools were mentioned. Uh, I think the first one was Children's World, where it turned out you went to school. I went there. It's a nursery school and um, it's in Los Angeles, so technically not in Beverly Hills. And a couple of the schools he mentioned also are in Los Angeles. But this one in particular, a lot of kids went to Children's World. So a lot of the kids I met when I went to Beverly Hills when I grew up were actually from Children's World, and Craig was one of them. And it literally was a preschool nursery school back in, like, 1970. Yeah, even my nieces went there. There were also two high schools mentioned, Hamilton and Fairfax. Fairfax is a high school that my mom went to, and Hamilton was the high school that my dad went to. And they were both high schools in Los Angeles. So they weren't in Beverly Hills. So if you didn't live in Beverly Hills, a lot of people in LA went to Fairfax or Hamilton. And they're still great schools now. Yeah, they're really close to Beverly High. But for some reason, we never played them in sports. We played all these other schools, but not Hamilton or Fairfax. Crossroads was also mentioned. So there were actually three high schools mentioned. And that was a private high school. And there's a whole bunch of private high schools all throughout Los Angeles. And Beverly Hills and Crossroads happens to be one of them. And then going backwards, there was also Horace Mann and Beverly Vista were both brought up. And those are two of the four elementary schools in Beverly Hills. The elementary schools are El Rodeo, Hawthorne, Horace Mann, and Beverly Vista. And all four elementary schools start from kindergarten and they go to eighth grade. And then we all funneled into one high school that went from ninth grade to 12th grade. So we actually met all the kids in all the different elementary schools at one high school. It was kind of really fun. And El Rodale was the best elementary school out of the four. Well, I disagree because I liked Beverly Vista. But on that note, why don't you tell them that it's all changed now through Beverly Hills and they don't do it the same. I think Beverly Vista is now the middle school. I can't even comprehend it or get my head around it. I'm I'm going to ignore that it's ever changed. Okay, we'll leave it alone then. But I went to Elberdale, so. I went to Beverly Vista. And I guess Craig went to Horace Mann. Well, pretty soon we'll have a Hawthorne person on as well. Something else brought up was 
Beverly Park, which you guys kind of go back and forth on it, calling it Ponyland and Kittyland. Kittyland was kind of a nickname for Beverly Park, and then adjacent to it was Ponyland. That's correct. I grew up with it being called Kittyland and Ponyland, as we discussed, and Kittyland it was seemed like it was all on the same property. I mean, I literally have a picture of me on a horse at the age of one on at Ponyland. But it was seemed like it was all the same property. And Kittyland had the amusement parks with the little roller coaster and the boats that went around, the fish boats. And Ponyland had little horses and we would ride around in a circle. It was just the greatest place ever. I heard that Walt Disney was influenced by Kittyland and that gave him inspiration to open up Disneyland. That's cool. But you learned a whole lot during this episode. I can't believe all the things you learned. One, that you went to preschool with Craig and you don't remember that. So crazy. Two, the whole Halloween story. You To this day, you never knew it was Johnny Silverman and not Ellie, that it was Ellie Miller and not Johnny Silverman. I know. I feel so bad. I need We need to have Johnny Silverman on our show, but I feel so bad. I did learn a lot. And three, that your parents, you and Craig's parents went to high school together. I know. How weird is that? It was really so many connect the dots. Not only was it Beverly Hills geography, but I learned a lot about Craig Rubin, Craig X Rubin on our episode. It was so awesome. It would not have been a talk between Beverly Hills people if we didn't mention some celebrities and some celebrities names were mentioned. Johnny Silverman. A good friend of ours in high school. Before he did movies, you might know Johnny Silverman from Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, before he did any movies, he was just a friend of ours and not famous. Then he also mentions Nick Cage. Not a personal friend of ours that went to high school with us. Both Johnny and Nick Cage are two people we'd love to have on the show. For sure. And then the crazy story that he stole his first weed from Ringo Starr, and that was the first marijuana he ever smoked. Ringo lived in Beverly Hills, and I remember his house. He lived in uh, North Beverly Hills. My friend lived next door, and we would often try to spy on him and his mainly his wife at the pool, who was Barbara Bach. Such a small world growing up Beverly Hills. Really fun episode, and thank you all for listening. So fun. Thanks for listening, and keep listening to Growing Up Beverly Hills. If you or someone you know is having a tough time right now, please reach out to the Suicide Hotline. 1-800-273-8255. There's always someone there to help. <laughs>